Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and a very happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As expected, the Federal Reserve raised rates by three quarters of a percent, the largest increase since 1993, in a bid to curb both inflation as well as minimize a recession that some people think is already underway. This as other central banks have made similar moves. President Biden is considering lifting tariffs imposed by his predecessor as his administration also works to address a new man-made epidemic, the rampant delays and cancellations across the U.S. air traffic system. That is devastating travel. Uh, one of our number has experienced this firsthand, and at least he's on a northeast. He's on the northeast corridor where he can take Amtrak instead of American. Lawmakers continue to deliberate the Biden administration's defense budget request as the consensus grows that the plus up will be, as originally expected, about fifty billion dollars. And the highly respected chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Washington Democrat Adam Smith, expressed frustration with criticism of the Pentagon's acquisition system, bluntly telling reporters last week, we're not effing making widgets here in arguing against the notion that weapons costs are increasing because the Pentagon is inept or lawmakers are failing to exhibit meaningful oversight. The war in Ukraine continues with allies and partners pledging more assistance to Kiev as the world's land warfare industry gathered in person for the first time in four years at the Euro Saturday exhibition in Paris. Uh, Boeing issued delivery numbers and its commercial airplanes chief, Stan Deal, told the London audience that wide body demand will return this as Airbus's game-changing A321 XLR made its first flight. And also uh, Brazil's Embraer nailed down what could be an absolutely game-changing contract of its own uh, with the Netherlands for the KC-390 transport uh, tanker aircraft. Joining us uh, today, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Guys, thanks very much for joining us, and a very happy Father's Day to you all. Vago, it's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Very happy Father's Day to you all. Great to be here, Vago, and happy Father's Day to you all. Thanks very much for taking time uh, on this special day to spend with uh, with us, and indeed a happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the audience uh, out there. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, uh, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, everybody, thanks again for joining us, Ron. Uh, another uh, rocky uh, week. Um, obviously, the Fed trying to move uh, belatedly in the eyes of some in the market uh, to uh, address uh, inflation uh, and recession uh, concerns, a three-quarter of a percentage hike, uh, largest in decades. We saw the Bank of uh, England do uh, a similar move, I think, just last week. Uh, talk to us about the macro news, but also how the group performed against uh, this news, because it was actually a, a good week for Boeing, for example. Yeah, it was a you know, very volatile week uh, uh, in the markets. Um, if you if you look at the VIX index, uh, it closed the week above 30. Uh, hasn't done that in a while. It usually kind of you know, settles in below, at least in recent history, below 30. 
uh, in, uh, in our recent history. And, and the BIX for everybody out there who's not familiar with it, it's really just sort of a measure of volatility in the market tends to spike when things go down. Um, had you know uh, big big moves in the market. When you look across the S and P uh, on the week, it was down uh, just under six percent. Um, some of the the big bellwether names uh, in our group, Boeing was the the clear uh, outperformer, uh, up almost uh, just under eight percent for the week. Lockheed was down six percent. Northrop was down four percent. Raytheon Technologies was down almost seven percent. Um, we launched on a small satellite company. Uh, called uh, Terran Orbital. It was up 21%, uh, but it's small cap and kind of a different part of the world. So uh, different address. So uh, anyway, um, and when you look at uh, fuel prices, uh, oil prices, uh, depending on uh, kind of what you're looking at, WTI or whatever, they came off a bit on the week. WTI uh, uh, closed the week uh, around 110 uh, per barrel. And the 10-year uh, popped up to about 3.5%, uh, but closed the week around 35 Two five percent. I think a lot of the volatility is being driven around the markets just trying to understand: Are we in a recession? Are we not? Uh, how do you position yourself for potential stagflation? Uh, we haven't talked about that in a long time, but that's an environment where you have inflation and low economic growth, or maybe even negative economic growth, uh, and what what goes on in that background. Boeing this week did quite well for for a couple reasons. Um, one, there, there was an article in the Seattle Times that suggested that. 787s could uh, start getting delivered again uh, in the near future uh, at a conference in London. I think it was Stan Deal who did say that um, they're, you know, they're making progress and it could happen soon. Uh, I just remind people when, the, when Boeing speaks, you have to kind of look at it sort of like the Fed, meaning they're very literal in what they say. So soon is better than later, but still kind of undefined. So we'll see, we'll see what happens there. And a 737 was being flown around China by China Southern. So I think uh, some investors looked at that as an indicator that uh, maybe 737s would go back into service in China sometime soon, which actually might be right, but we just don't know. So we'll see. So on, on those on those things, and then and then finally, you know, if you look at some of the movements of stocks in the week, some of the stocks that got really, really hit hard um, in previous weeks, there was a lot of covering going on. Um, so some of the big shorts, um, which you know, Boeing probably was one of got covered. So you saw some of the more volatile names, uh, some of the names, some of the uh, smaller SPAC names that we cover, some of the commercial space names, some of the eVTOL names. They actually did pretty well on the week because that was people covering shorts. And I'm certain Boeing got caught up in a little bit of that too. Uh, you know, uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly uh, an interesting week. And I, I like your uh, Fed uh, an analogy uh, with, with Boeing. And we certainly hope that the picture uh, does turn up for the company, obviously. Um, let me ask you uh, just on consensus on spending, um, right? I mean, we had markups. The Senate uh, is uh, coming in, right? I mean, this, this, the sense originally was we'd be around $50 billion in a, in a plus up. Uh, the sense now is that it's between 40 and 50 billion, right? The Senate, I think, was at forty-four billion in their in their plus up. Um, how's the market taking that news? And is market and is the markup actually starting to move any needles uh, for anybody in their their perceptions of where it is we're going? Yeah, it really wasn't a big focus uh, of the market. I think you know the the market understands that there will be a you know a, a meaningful plus up. Um, you know the exact details of it. We weren't getting a lot of questions on. I think there was just more, you know, folks you know, eyes spinning around all the volatility in the market because we were seeing days where you know you'd see, uh, you know, indices up a couple percent, down a couple percent, uh, you know, in the in the period of just a day or two. That those are humongous moves. 
So I, I think there was just a lot of, um, you know, how can I say, uh, people getting dizzy by the movement in the market and not so much focus on some of the more micro issues and, uh, you know, kind of where the plus up is in the defense budget, you know, for better, for worse in the current market environment. Um, and it may not seem this way to some of the companies, but to some investors, it's a, you know, more of a, of, a, of a wonky detail where, you know, it's going the right direction and they kind of get that. And then they got other things they right. need to focus on. Sash, uh, you know, certainly a, a big week for Europe. Uh, it looks like uh, accession talks, or, or at least it appears that the uh, European Union is going to extend accession uh, to uh, Ukraine uh, after a, a very important meeting where uh, the French, German, Spanish, and Romanian leaders uh, visited Kiev. Uh, European countries promised to do more uh, to support um, to support uh, Ukraine. I mean, the United States has done a terrific job. Eastern European nations have done a terrific job. Poland's done a terrific job. You could also look at some of the, you know, the United Kingdom, certainly Canada, Latvia, uh, whereas uh, France, uh, Italy, and Germany uh, have come under uh, criticism. Uh, and I, I, I should have said it was the French, German, Italian, and Romanian leaders, not Spanish. You know, you were at Euro Saturday last week. We're going to get a readout uh, on that for a while. But talk us to us about macroeconomic factors and and how this succession decision you know, and, and the pledge for more assistance is is likely to materially change anything for, for the companies because there have been a lot of pledges, but the deliveries have been moving a little bit on the slow side. Give us the macroeconomic and then a little bit of the, the nuanced take on, on what Ukraine means for, for Europe and what these new pledges mean for Europe and European defense. Well, uh, I look, I mean, you say that the, the deliveries have been on the slow side. That's because that's how the system works. Uh, I, mean, I think that... Um, Deliveries from Germany have been incredibly slow. And there's been a lot of criticism within Germany that German deliveries uh, to Ukraine have been incredibly slow. Um, and uh, that, that's, that's an issue, of, I think, of German politics. Although it's a, I don't think people should underestimate the degree to which uh, the delivery of, of military equipment to the Ukraine is starting to clear out a lot of European arsenals now because they weren't well-equipped, they weren't well uh, funded and stored beforehand, and the quantity of quantities of ammunition, missiles, and so forth being that have been delivered to Ukraine have been astonishing. So, you know, we'll come back to this. But over three hundred thousand rounds of uh, heavy artillery ammunition, one hundred and fifty-five, one hundred and fifty-two millimeter, has already been delivered to, to Ukraine. Of which about a hundred and uh, probably about one hundred and fifty has come from the US. The rest has come from Europe. Um, Anti tank missiles. Uh, you know, we know that. Ukraine has received more than half of the UK's entire stocks of Javelin and Enlil. Um, so uh, the problem, I think, is that ramping production up now is going to take two to three years in some cases, because there isn't a great deal left from, um, you know, to, to ship out of the bunkers. And what was interesting was that President Macron at Eurosatric gave this impassioned plea to French industry. You know, he said, you know, we are now on a war footing. Uh, you need to start raising your production rates and reducing your lead, lead times. And I talked to some of the French companies afterwards and they said, please, or rather, you know, Gallic accent, please. Um, how can we do that when we have had our production rates cut back and our funding cut back in the last 10 years and we don't have spare capacity uh, for a lot of stuff? And also it's really hard to recruit people. Uh, and uh, so the fact that we were getting pushed back immediately from industry who were saying, if you want to raise rates, you know, you've got to pay us now. And um, it will then take many quarters 
not mu- not months before stuff starts to flow. I think it just shows how difficult this whole process is. As a um, and I think the accession talks are, are politically very very important, um, and hopefully that will be a bit of a flip to uh, the Ukraine. It's worth being aware that one of the quotes that has been going around, um, you know, uh, some of the sort of better informed, um, uh, particularly media coverage this week in Europe, has been uh, from uh, you know, a, a, a quote from uh, a, a think tank, very senior think tank in, in DC saying, you know, the Biden administration is beginning to think that the whole Ukraine war is not worth five, five dollar uh, gas. Now, is that true? You, you guys are much better informed than I am. But the fact that there are people saying that, people believing that, and hence there's a worry that the Biden administration's commitment might be weakening. I don't think Europe can step up to the plate and compensate for that, not in the short term. And if that's the case, then Ukraine is going to do very badly for a while, uh, unless this becomes a, you know, a war of survival on a European level. And that is not yet a given politically. I, I just want to say that basically on everybody who I'm talking to uh, here, uh, it, it appears to be quite committed to helping Ukraine uh, as as much as, as possible, even though there is a strain that would much prefer the administration be focusing more on China and this money be going to China as opposed to this money, um, you know, at a time when when Republicans are making a bigger issue of debt uh, and wanting to curtail uh, defense spending. Right. I mean, so there are those those forces. But thus far, it seems as though the administration is pretty committed to helping Ukraine and acknowledging that it's a strategic problem. Backing off uh, means uh, sending a very bad signal, uh, for example, to the Chinese. Uh, talk to us briefly about macroeconomic trends and how they shape the performance of the group in Europe. Um, macro, you know, macros has just deteriorated during the week. Stagflation, something that, that approaches it, uh, and uh, rising interest rates, um, different different levels, different different timings. But uh, both, you know, the fact that the UK and, and Switzerland both raised rates this week uh, was distinctly unhelpful. And we're sitting where you know this week you saw a bit of a bifurcation. In performance, civil stocks generally down. I mean, Airbus is down in the low 90 euros now, um, having been up at you know 110, 113, uh, even a, you know two months ago. Um, Rolls Royce has been uh, relatively weak. Safran um, defense stocks have been performing actually pretty well. Uh, and on you know Thursday, Friday, when uh, Thursday in particular, when markets were very weak, the defense stocks were were, were holding up, which is it, it's it, it's surprisingly nice when defense stocks actually behave defensively. Uh, and it suggests the markets are, in this respect, being uh, fairly consistent and rational at the moment. Um, Richard, uh, uh, thanks uh, Thanks for your patience. Um, commercial uh, aviation ecosystem is, is effectively uh, off the rails, right? I mean, just when, you, just when you were getting out of the pandemic and demand and folks are saying, yes, I'm going to fly again. Um, it's coming unhinged. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, uh, is beginning to is you know has been focused, but focusing, I guess, more uh, on the topic. Uh, and you were even impacted by it. Why? Why? Why are we where we are, and what can be done to fix it? Well, I think we all know the numbers. You know, we have never seen anything like a, an eighty percent downturn in the history of the business, aside from a couple of days after nine eleven, year over year. The worst we'd ever seen was 3.2%. We had negative 66%. And we're having a very strong snapback in terms of demand. Um, and of course, finding people, depickling planes, as uh, Ron would say, all of these are proving major challenges. Now, the response to this from critics is that, gee, we gave the airlines many billions of dollars, 
to keep capacity in place. Um, and there's a certain degree of truth to that, but it's also just very difficult to bring things back, even if you do have people in place or some people in place, and that's where the criticism should be, it doesn't mean the planes are easy to get back. And then of course, there's the perhaps unanticipated, but should have been anticipated impact of you know, the maintenance, repair and overhaul requirements and the enormous staffing challenges. And I don't think anyone anticipated that the labor market would be quite this tight. You know, I think a lot of people took a chance in furloughing people or firing people, sadly, and then figured eh, it'll be a slow recovery. You know, from a macro standpoint, this is the first time in the history of the business, at least in, in our experience and probably since ever, that we haven't led the way. You know, there's this wonderful data set from the um, Federal Reserve Economic Data Center that basically looks at everything that isn't an aircraft or aviation. It's, <laughs> I call it the, uh, you know, the non-Richard data set. It's perfect for me. It's probably perfect for you guys. <laughs> and it, normally it lags us. And this time it is roaring back, helping to fuel inflation, again, per, uh, per Ron's correct prediction. Um, but we've never been in this position before. Normally we lead the way in hiring and that you know massive need but here we're kind of lagging people who make furniture and ping pong tables and ho man hotels and whatever else so we're in kind of terra unfirma here in a lot of ways ron uh, you also got uh, impacted by terra unfirma uh, sort of give us your your sense on this and then uh, sash would like to get your sense you know from a european perspective uh, what we're seeing uh, as, as well and whether or not uh, some of those trends are being uh, reflected there go ahead ron yeah, yeah. General Dynamics hosted a, an investor uh, day down at Gulfstream in, in uh, Savannah on Friday, which I would have loved to debrief you guys on. However, um, I couldn't get there because <laughs> the, the flights on Thursday were multiple flights were canceled and it really ended up being quite a mess. So, uh, you know, the, the, the recovery of the system into just sort of a tricky travel season anyway because of weather and you know all the other things that happen in the summer it, it's it's going to be a bumpy summer ahead right um so it's yeah i mean it's you know for sure you know, that's an example just this week that you know i couldn't get to where I, I really needed to go um and i tried not for lack of trying spent probably a good five six hours in new york airport but um it it just didn't play out uh, and I should point out, there, there, Amtrak was, it was not easy to get Amtrak to get you down there uh, the way uh, Richard could, uh, could, take, uh, could take a sell a service uh, to get to Penn Station uh, in New York or the new Moynihan yeah, I think, Penn I think getting, Station. getting to Savannah would take Amtrak and then a freight train, something like that. I would <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I think, Savannah's, I think Savannah's on the line, but, uh, but I, take, I take well your point. Um, uh, Sash, uh, quick add uh, on your part in terms of how European... Uh, aviation uh, is doing because I want to sort of get into some of the comments that Stan Deal made, uh, and then Airbus's A321 XLR first flight as well in a moment. But but go ahead, or or Sash, you know, if you want to take us yeah. into what Stan uh, had to say, you're you're welcome to do that as well. No, I'll start the European aviation, which is it's actually pretty bad. It's probably worse than the UK, uh, and that's because both British Airways and EasyJet, um, you know, as Richard described, cut uh, staff. Shareways cut about a quarter of its stuff uh, during the uh, pandemic, and lo and behold, can't, you know, suddenly finds it can't re-recruit them again. Same with EasyJet. Um, but actually, the problems are also at the airports and air traffic control. So um, Gatwick Airport is incredibly badly affected um, because its, uh, its own uh, air traffic control has just run out of hours 
because they don't have very many. So Gatwick has taken the decision to cut at least 10% of all flights. Unilaterally, they just say to airlines, you know, we're, we're going to cut the, the following flights because they can't guarantee to provide the uh, the airport management service. Um, talking to a, a, a colleague in Europe, very, very similar uh, in Germany. Lufthansa and Eurowings are um, having to cut about 10% of their flights every day at the moment because they can't reliably deliver them uh, due to um, staff shortages. Uh, and those are self-imposed staff shortages. The comments by politicians of, we gave you guys all this money during the pandemic, so you know, you really should have, should have been in bed. It's entirely echoed uh, in Europe, um, but it's just not going to get them very far, unfortunately. The other thing that is really fouling up European aviation, though, and it's worth thinking about, is that with the closure of Belarusian and Ukrainian and Russian airspace, there's a lot of heavy aircraft routing through Central Europe uh, and Southern Europe at the moment that wouldn't do that otherwise. And that is causing quite a lot of clogging up of uh, bits of the Euro control area. Um, it all makes things worse. There's no way this is going to be sorted out uh, during the summer. It's, it would be, a, frankly, a minor miracle if it was sorted out sometime in Q4. Uh, the recruiting process is going to take much longer. Uh, the airlines are taking flat, but they're not, you know, it's not enabling them to change their behavior. Richard, let me let me go to you. Start us off on what Stan Deal had to say in London uh, about wide body demand. Uh, you know, R R Ron did uh, echo that at the at the start and uh, A321 XLR uh, first flight, right? I mean, this is a program that is becoming realer uh, with each passing day, whereas it looks like we're in a little, uh, little bit of a holding pattern in terms of Boeing and its programs. You know, I, I'm probably getting this quote wrong, but I think um, it was, um, you know, boy, um, something like um, spin. The definition of spin is a hope dressed up as an assertion. And uh, this whole wide body demand thing just sort of fits that classically. And you're right to tie it into the 321 XLR flight. You know, there are now over 4,100 321 NEOs in the order book. Uh, a big chunk of that used to be twin aisle demand. And... So what Sandiel is describing is the comeback of international demand. Yes, there are people now with international demand coming back. Some of them would love a 787. They can't get one. The others are thinking small is beautiful and direct flights are eco-friendly and they generate more revenue and they cost less compared to a hub and spoke system to operate. That 321 Neo or 737 Max, if it's the right route, if it doesn't need 4,000 plus nautical miles, that really works great for us. So I think he's looking at international demand coming back and asserting that it is twin aisle demand. That is not the case. What we really need for wide body demand to come back is Asia. And, you know, Asia's slowdown was before the pandemic, as I've said many times, and now it is badly lagging. You know, in terms of capacity, it's, you know, Europe and North America down 20-ish percent but Asia down 50-ish percent led by China, um, that doesn't appear to be in any hurry, hurry to come back. So in other words, what international numbers are coming back, um, they're not the sort that absolutely positively must have a twin aisle. Meanwhile, you look at the huge growth in demand for cargo planes, either new build or conversions, um, it's a lot of people who used to put that in the belly of their twin aisle jets that have been taken offline and maybe are eager to get that capacity back right away. 
And then on top of that, of course, you know, the one plane that Boeing has that is a twin owl that people want is the 787. And here we are in whatever month of this prolonged and frankly inexplicable drama. So I, I just don't think there's much of a grounds for optimism on the basis of what Stan is seeing there. Ron? I can't disagree with um, you know, Richard's comments. Um, you know, it, you know if, you, if you take Boeing at their word, they'll start delivering 787s soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess my interpretation of that is sometime in the third quarter, uh, be it that we're almost in the third quarter. Um, so maybe that'll be something they can talk about at Faro. That would be great, right? Um, and uh, you know, this, they did highlight uh, you know, supply chain issues on the 737 ramp. Um, so that, you know, that'll be an issue too. Uh, for you know, for everybody you know listening out there, I mean, Boeing has about I think it's 116 787 sitting in inventory today, and they still have about call it I think 350 737s uh, sitting sitting in inventory. So you know, kind of a key a key thing for them is working these aircraft through the system and getting them out. Uh, and the, the the pickling issue that they run into on 73s, presumably they'll run into that again on the 78s because some of those 78s have been sitting around for a while. Sash. Just to reiterate for our listeners, um, uh, more on the sort of the narrow body uh, side of things overall. Whether you know whether we or the manufacturers um, like it or not, uh, you know we it makes sense to look at, at wide body. Oh, sorry, at narrow body um, performance uh, family by family. The three hundred and twenty family and the uh, seven hundred and thirty-seven family are close enough. Uh, and you know clearly there are overlaps and there are areas where um, the, the two counties don't overlap very well because the AG20, uh, AG21 in its various forms is significantly bigger than the uh, or longer range than uh, the, the Max 10. But I'm just look at the 320 Neo family versus 77 Max family. 77 Max family undelivered backlog. I aircraft they haven't built yet. They clearly haven't delivered a ton of aircraft, but the backlog is just a touch over uh, 3,000 aircraft. The AT20 Neo family adjusted in the same way as, as Boeing does for ASC 606. You know, we're not stupid. We can do that. Um, uh, is about 3,000, uh, sorry, about 5,800. It, so it's nearly twice the size as the, uh, as the 737 MAX. And that is going to translate to higher production rates going forward on a sustained basis, unless Airbus decides to make its backlog last longer. And I think that's pretty unlikely, given their ambitions to get up to 75 a month. It's looking increasingly unlikely to me that they'll get 75 a month in 2024, 2025. I suspect it's going to be another, you know, year, 18 months before they get to that, just because of the supply chain. But Airbus has got the backlog to out-deliver the 737 dramatically and sustainably. And that's the mark of an aircraft that the market thinks is, um, uh, or a family, that the market thinks is uh, in the right place, at the right price, at the right performance. Uh, it's going to be particularly interesting. Um, a foreign borough will be critical, uh, Ron, uh, as, as you said, or I, th I think I can't remember which of you said that, but foreign borough is going to be very critical because um, the senior leadership of the company is going to be interacting regularly with reporters. Uh, they're going to be asking them tough questions from uh, the global aerospace and defense press. 
uh, and to try to get a little bit more clarity on, on where we stand overall uh, and, and what storylines we hear, because obviously sometimes you don't hear it from Boeing, but you'll hear it from one of your sources uh, at the airline uh, airlines. I remember years ago, uh, you know, hearing about the 787 from my airline sources about where they were going uh, with development of the program. Richard, uh, let's let's we've got a lot to cover. We don't have a lot of time to cover it in, um, you know, uh, you know, start us off. Uh, Adam Smith, uh, highly respected uh, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, and while I normally agree with him, um, I do think on LCS, uh, which was a, the question was about LCS, which apparently is what triggered his ire. Um, you know, it 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 was a, a foul up. It doesn't look like it had particularly. Lex, uh, you know, it did appear to have somewhat softer oversight uh, and bad decisions and, and the Navy's simple resistance to the entire idea, right? I mean, it was a little bit like a recalcitrant six-year-old who didn't want to eat its broccoli. Uh, they didn't want to eat it. They didn't eat it. Uh, and, and ultimately, right, mission modules were never developed. Uh, the ships are cracking. They're burn more gas than they, right? I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, and, and, oh, we know we have gearbox problems, so we just have to retire the whole lot as opposed to fixing them, right? I mean, it, it just seems like a, like a follow-up. But more broadly, he was delivering a message that, you know, as Norm Augustine would say, right, I mean, this isn't washing machines and we're not making soap. Right. We're, we're doing things that are more complicated. He did push back on NGAD saying it's too many eggs in one basket. And he's a little bit concerned about that. Uh, you know, we did uh, talk a little bit about that last week. And indeed, you know, it, it is increasingly looking like actually it might be Northrop that has this program. Right. We're building off of uh, what Ron uh, has has said about, you know, just the sheer amount of capacity that they've built. That is there's more than what would be required to do B-21 even in an accelerated uh, right. Talk to us a little bit about what uh, the chairman is, is trying to say, how it affects anything and whether or not you think he's got it right. I do think we get an enormous amount right and we do develop some of the very best systems on the planet, uh, ultimately. And 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 he's he's somebody who has a, um, you know, when when he thinks people are being cued or something has, has a tendency of sort of stepping up. But I just wanted to get your sense on it, Iran, uh, get your uh, sense on that as well before we return to uh, Sash and, and get his uh, uh, Eurosatory take. Go ahead. You know, I understand his frustration. It's one of the great paradoxes, I suppose, of the defense industry that really bad programs that result in bad things kind of look an awful lot like really bad programs that result in good things. You know, I mean, you look at the process of getting to D-22, F-22, F-111, C-5 back in the day. God, they were awful. And there were scandals and, oh, my God. But they produced amazing strategic capabilities at the end of the day that really helped make the U.S. a superpower. But then you get programs like, I don't know, uh, uh, Sergeant York, DIVAD, you know, the Divisional Air Defense or, or right. you know, or, of course, in this case, LCS. I totally agree. <laughs> they don't look like good programs and they don't look like they've produced anything good either. And it's really hard to tell. So I understand his frustration. They, of course, have a lot more knowledge about what's going on, what's happening. Uh, but I would hope, you know, they would also be able to say, okay, at this point, the odds of success and the odds of actually it being worth it for this system to be funded and get through this god awful process, yeah, just just not worth it. We need to walk away. So I would hope they would keep that in mind. And uh, you know. And that's why I think his his comments, you know, might just have provoked a little bit of frustration on the oversight side, because you know it, 
he didn't seem fully willing to say, sometimes we get it terribly badly wrong and we need to walk away. I should point out, right, I mean, in the case of littoral combat ship, um, the Navy is looking at getting rid of them without really anything to show for them at all, as opposed to at least in the future combat systems, it was such a science laboratory that there will be hybrid propulsion, optronics, right? I mean, there was just so much investment on so many things that the Army is harvesting a little bit like Comanche. It wasn't a complete dead end. We did generate uh, a class of uh, stealthier uh, helicopters uh, revealed for the first time in the bin Laden raid, right? And a whole bunch of Army aviation programs that you could at least argue the, the army manages to harvest something from these, uh, you know, big, big science project like programs and a little bit of frustration on the Navy's uh, side of things. Ron, uh, just just to get your sense uh, a little bit on that um, and, uh, you know, what you make of his NGAD criticism, because NGAD is not just an airplane. Um, it is it is a family of systems for future air dominance that include everything from from weapons to sensors to unmanned platforms to novel teaming, right, uh, you know, sort of sort of your, your sense on his base comments, but also, you know, what this means uh, for NGAD, because there is a sense it's not, it might not be Boeing. Lockheed may have a part of it, but the company is still advocating very strongly for the F-35, um, which uh, suggests that that's its priority. Uh, and then and then you've got a company that's being very, very quiet. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a couple of thoughts, you know, future imagery architecture, I don't know, the list goes on. Um, even look at F-35, it's procured out of all 50 states, right? You know, why is that? Um, so, you know, I, I don't think the remarks, you know, there, you know, there are inefficiencies, inefficiencies in the process. Um, there's, you know, things over the years that we all know um, that have been um, acquired by the folks on the Hill and the folks in the Pentagon don't want because of political reasons. So, to claim that, you know, you know, we're not making widgets or whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the process is what it is. I think it's fair to claim that the process is trying to get, um, you know, the best equipment that it can to the warfighters in the field. Um, that, that that's a common goal. Of course it is. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's not just, you're not just selling iPhones. I mean, there's a broader mission here. And, I, and, and, and I think, and, and I hope, and my sense is that mission isn't lost on everybody involved from the folks in the Hill to the Pentagon, to the contractors, but, you know, is it an efficient process? No, are mistakes made? Yeah. And to claim that they're not, that's just disingenuous. Uh, and, and it is right. I mean, we're not making widgets. These are uh, some highly uh, ambitious uh, capabilities that, um, you know, and given the United States and the way we do it, right. We're, we're not happy enough to take the easy road, right? I mean, we sometimes take a technologically more complicated uh, road uh, and there's a lot that can be learned from our allies and partners that sometimes take a much, much more practical and pragmatic approach, whether they're Israeli, uh, whether they're British, whether they're Swedish uh, or, or what have you. Uh, Sash, do you want to just jump into this briefly? Because I realize before we have to talk to you, uh, I've got to go to Ron and ask him about the KC-390 and get all of your views on that. But, but really quickly on sort of advanced weapons development, right? I mean, you know, let ye who is free of sin cast the first stone, right? I mean, Britain is, is struggling through Ajax, even if the dreadnought uh, submarine is, is on track, right? Sort of give us, give us your, your sense on how you perceive comments like that from prominent lawmakers when you hear them. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's a really good example. Uh, you know, let's, let's compare Ajax and literal combat ship. Ajax is a, an entirely reasonable uh, military requirement that has been wholeheartedly screwed up by the contractor. 
You know, it is not uh, beyond the wit of a competent defence contractor to develop a tracked, uh, heavy armoured reconnaissance vehicle. The problem with the littoral combat ship was that it was flawed from the second it was invented, because you were trying to invent a relatively stealthy, ludicrously lightly armed frigate with twice the power of anything that had ever gone into it before. So everything was focused on uh, generating stupid amounts of, of power and hence speed at the cost of everything else. It was, it was and is a totally flawed thing. If you want a, a lightly armed frigate, go and buy a lightly armed frigate. Uh, it's very, very sad that for the nation that invented the frigate, the United States, you can't see that at, you know, at present, or at least until you bought Frem, that the best of the best of the frigates were produ are produced in Europe, because that's all that European shipyards produce. But so I, I think those two programs are wildly different. One was uh, badly managed um, once it got underway, and the other actually was wholly flawed, and always was going to be wholly flawed. It's incredibly sad that You've wasted so much money on on littoral combat ship because you're never going to be able to make a silk purse out of that sow's ear. Uh, yes, and uh, and it's really, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's not abundantly clear to me. I mean, you're saying that the aluminum ships have hull cracking problems, gearbox problems. That's that's not something that's going to engender those 26 ships to be snapped up by somebody on the international market when they can go to German or French providers or Italian providers and have things that actually have working gearboxes and you know, lower operating economics uh, uh, and uh, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I pity the nation and the Navy that takes on those ships. I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking about a successful program, Ron, talk to us about the KC-390 and how important this Dutch uh, order is, uh, because it is, uh, you know, as, as many people as we on this program have been fans of the airplane for some time, uh, and it was intended to target the C-130, and it looks like it's actually making ground against the C-130 in, in what could be a watershed uh, uh, contract. And I want to get everybody's kind of quick take on this before we end it uh, on, on your Saturday. Go ahead. Yeah, so the, so the Netherlands uh, uh, announced that they will be buying uh, uh, KC-390s to replace uh, C-130 images. Um, they'll start taking them, I think, uh, mid-decade. Uh, I think 2026 is when they start taking them. Uh, I think the number they ordered was five. I have to double-check that. It's four or five to replace the, the aircraft that they had. Uh, the Netherlands would represent the third NATO country uh, purchasing the aircraft. Uh, the two previous ones were Portugal. Um, and, and Hungary. Uh, so this uh, moves you know, into another region of, of NATO. And uh, it's, it's an important export contract because it's is one that uh, you know, Bo Boeing is no longer a partner with Embraer on this program. Uh, and one of Embraer's strategies uh, on the program uh, and their defense business writ large is to get into kind of more regional uh, relationships and partnerships, and I'd expect more of that to come. So uh, it's a it's an important win for the platform. It's an important win for the program. Um, it's a super capable aircraft, and it's another example. I think going back to our previous topic, where you know could could the U.S. use a KC three hundred and ninety instead of a C one hundred and thirty J? Yeah, will that <laughs> ever happen? I don't know. I doubt it because of political reasons. But it's it's a it's a very capable uh, twin jet. It can carry more than a C one hundred and thirty J. It's got great short field performance. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a beautiful machine. Uh, Richard, uh, your, your take on what this acquisition means and, and is this uh, kind of a watershed? Because, um, you know, folks are still buying C-130s uh, as well, right? I mean, five orders does not undo a track record that's been consistent since 1955, some would argue. 
No, I mean, I think that's right. You know, the 130 is still in pretty good shape. On the other hand, I think uh, Ron might have a point. I mean, this is a really appealing aircraft. Um, and there are an awful lot, like <laughs> how many hundreds and hundreds of C-130H models that are 40 or 50 years old that they kept, you know, they kept putting off the replacement for whatever country. But turning to I guess, sort of two sub-issues, one is this is one of Embraer's few non low intensity threat systems. You know, you look at the ALX Super Tucano, it's, it's a low intensity threat. You look at their reconnaissance planes, the 145 base ones, E145 EMP, Maritime Patrol or AEW, they're kind of low intensity, you know, Mexico has them. Um, but then you look at this, this is a, a proper, you know, NATO type of system and that's important. Other sub point though, we're talking the Netherlands, you know, this is all intra-Europe. Um, and they're not exactly using these for special first uh, special forces infiltration the way the French and Germans have purchased C-130s, for example. It's not going to be used the kind of ranges, say, the Saudis would want. So it's it's interesting. It might be a watershed moment, but probably too soon to know. Indeed, interesting. Sash, uh, your your uh, take on I mean, I should also point out, right, as and, I, and Ron, I think you were the one pointing this out, right? The, it's a it's a 767 fuselage diameter, right? So at the time when w- there was a lot of expectation about whether or not Embraer would become the true sort of um, you know third competitor, uh, it was certainly a fuselage diameter that was really interesting for a company that's made uh, regional and narrow uh, body uh, aircraft. Whether or not that, that uh, you know was kind of a stepping stone because the Brazilians are brilliant engineers, right? They're they're always going somewhere. Uh, in whatever they're they're pioneering, uh, this, Sash, uh, really quickly uh, over to you, and then I've got uh, a Euro Saturday question to cap off the week. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Look, my, I mean, my worry about KC three ninety is that it's still only got thirty five orders. Um, I, I think it's just, I, you know this is a good order. The Netherlands Air Force is a really serious air force. Uh, they are, you know, it's a technically highly competent air force. I do wonder whether they've got a, a requirement for air to air refueling as well as transport, or whether it's just transport they're interested in. But you know they. They operate their C-130s very, very well. And uh, I think this is a tremendous achievement for uh, Embraer. If I was looking at the next two customers for the KC-390, I'd look north of the Netherlands, uh, Sweden and Finland. Neither of them have really stepped up uh, and re- uh, in the case of Sweden, replaced their KC-130H oh, sorry, their C-130H models. Um, both need, uh, you know, have actually got very, very large distances to cover just in terms of internal uh, transport and both have a requirement for air-to-air refueling that is not going to be satisfied satisfactorily by the uh, the NATO tanker wing. Um, so I think NATO, Sweden and Finland, it's entirely plausible that, in fact, I think it becomes increasingly likely that they become customers for and that's half a dozen each. My worry about KC-390 ultimately is it's actually it's a pretty small aeroplane. You say it's a 767 and that actually tells what we need to know. It's a small fuselage compared to what the gold standard, which is C-17 or A-400F. And if you look, most um, uh, European nations have traded up from C-130 to uh, A-400M. What you need in a tanker is not payload in terms of tonnage, because almost all military uh, loads are actually bulky rather than heavy. The exception being ammunition, actually. uh, Small arms ammunition is shockingly dense, but most military military loads are, are not dense. Uh, you just need a, an immense amount of volume. And in that respect, four meter wide um, uh, payload bays are the are really what, what's required if you're going to 
move serious amounts of um, uh, stores and so forth uh, around by, by airlift, uh, i.e. if you can't get it there by truck or ship, which is always far more efficient. So I do worry that it's a very, very nice aircraft, but it's actually pretty small. Uh, key takeaways uh, from your standpoint, from uh, Eurosatory, uh, we saw a lot of activity, a lot of uh, partnerships announced, uh, some very novel stuff, whether it involved Hanwha, uh, Sweden looking to get more Archer systems, right? I mean, there was just, I mean, that just scratches uh, the very uh, tip uh, tip of the out. But Thales, uh, we had a, a conversation with Marc Darmont uh, talking about the new uh, di- uh, combat uh, digital platform the company released for uh, uh, more sophisticated battle management. Walk us through what you thought some of the key uh, developments over the course of the week were. Okay, this is the first Eurosatry for four years. Uh, Eurosatry is the, the world's largest land systems um, conference. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, show. It really does matter because everybody turns up. And interestingly, they don't just turn up to sell into France. They turn up to sell their, their wares or to offer their wares to the world. So huge turnout by Turkey, huge turnout by Israel, um, uh, and you know by a lot of other. Uh, nations, but paradoxically, the weakest turnout was from the UK and the US. But but everything's relative. Um, the the really big surprises. There's been a color change. Uh, the change of camouflage has changed. A color of camouflage changed from tan sand to serious, you know, dark green khaki again. So we're, we're you know we're back in the northern hemisphere. We're back in um, uh, effectively in in Europe, and it's it was heavy armor, armor time. You know, if you just went and did a, a straw poll of what's on the stand, um, uh, you know, large wheeled AFVs, wheeled armoured personnel carriers, tracked uh, IFVs, um, uh, artillery, all 155 millimetre. I mean, uh, next effort had one LG1, it was 105 millimetre, which was looking really terribly small and shrunk by comparison. I think somebody left it in the hot wash too long. Uh, main battle tank. Um, and all of the talk was about the rates of ammunition com- consumption and the need for range that the whole war in Ukraine is showing at the moment. So that's 155 millimeter ammunition immediately. It was about survivability. Every armored fighting vehicle, every helicopter, every uh, fixed wing aircraft is going to need a really a serious active protection system. I don't think many people think that chaff and flares, which was always the, the default for protecting helicopters, is, is going to cut it anymore. Um, main battle tanks. Um, uh, you know, I, I find it very ironic, but actually the, the strongest competition in main battle tanks is between two German companies, Krasmarkov Eggman and Rheinmetall. Uh, KMW, which is clearly part of the, uh, the KNDS, Franco-German uh, merged group, um, produced another derivative of their enhanced main battle tank, which was rather un- unfairly, crudely called uh, the Franken tank uh, at the last Eurosatry then. It was purely dropping a Leclerc turret onto a uh, Leopard 2 hull and saying, well, we can now get away with one fewer crewman. Four years on, guess what? It's gone back to a four-man crew again, because I think everyone realizes that's what you need to fight a tank in a high-intensity war. The turret is massively more sophisticated, but it's got so many different guns, four different calibers of guns, for heaven's sake, um, that looks to me uh, to be just over-engineered. Rheinmetall um, has... Um, also taken the Leopard 2 hull as the, as, as the basis. I think on the basis that it ain't break, so why, why change it? But they've done a, put a completely new digital um, turret. Uh, they call the thing KF51. Uh, and it's got their new 130 millimeter uh, smooth bore gun. Um, and they are already live firing that. 
my my take both um uh KNDS and Ryan Mattal are aware that the Franco-German uh, main ground combat system program is in danger of collapse because it's just too far out and it's too complex and it's Franco-German and none of that is going well at an industrial level at the moment. So they're preparing uh, plan B and plan B is going to be a, a, you know, a new main battle tank based on Leopard 2 built in Germany and it will probably do astonishingly well in the export markets. In about 30 seconds uh, on uh, AUKUS, the Australia-US-UK uh, uh, submarine and indeed broader technology deal, random submarine is one uh, part of it uh, to furnish nuclear attack submarines. Uh, it looks like Astute is out of the picture. Uh, we've seen some reporting from uh, Australia that we're looking at a Virginia uh, and uh, indeed Kurt Campbell, uh, the Biden administration's point uh, person uh, on uh, Asia last week to a Center for a New American Security conference, you know, said that th that agreement would be moving forward shortly. And there's a lot of progress been made from from your standpoint. What are you picking up in terms of what the contours uh, of this uh, agreement are? Right. I mean, we've seen a termination payment to DCNS uh, as well as to, uh, you know, uh, and the question is how much it is Talos is uh, part of that as the Australians look to unwind the existing uh, agreement with the French. Or naval group, I should say, not DCNS. Boy, that dated me there. Um, you know, walk us through really quickly what you know and where we are on AUKUS uh, as we uh, now uh, enter mid-year in 22. In reverse order, um, uh, naval group got uh, a, a compensation payment from Australia of 555 million um, dollars or euros. About a fifth of that uh, will go to Charles, so 100, 100 odd million. Um, the French that I talked to at Eurostat were actually quite pleased with that. They just think it gives closure on the submarine deal and they can move ahead with other uh, bilateral deals now. And from their point of view, you know, they, they still think the Australians owe them something, but it will clearly be in a different form. Um, you know, they're, they're now looking at how to develop the, uh, the diplomatic and hence the uh, military relationship further. AUKUS itself, um, I think that, you know, uh, it, it's probably far better if you ask the, um, <laughs> the, the US Navy, uh, where the, um, or, you know, how uh, Navy can build uh, Virginia class submarines and still divert one, two, three, or however many to uh, Australia, because it's an issue of the US Naval, uh, naval Industrial Base. Uh, I'm sure you can do it. I just don't think the Australians are going to be getting a nuclear submarine this side of 2050 at this rate. Um, we know that the uh, US uh, nuclear submarine um, setup is very, very constrained at the moment. UK is not a lot better, frankly, but uh, the UK could have added another uh, astute, pro, uh, astute submarine on in the probably in the sometime in the early 2030s. Guys, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody has a, a great uh, Father's Day, uh, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. I wouldn't be a weekend without it, Vargo. Thanks so much. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vargo. Thanks so much. Always enjoy being on, Vargo. Thanks so much for doing this. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.